Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I'm joined by Mariah Lafanabaca and J.A. Smith to discuss their book, Work Wants Work, Labour and Desire at the End of Capitalism, in which we discuss why we are working so hard, what kind of work is valued and what a post-work future might look like. As always, thank you so much to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want to support the show, please do make sure that you uh, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support us in another way, then please consider sharing this episode on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, here's a quick word from our sponsors before this episode. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has a load of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age, edited by Colin Barker, Gareth Dale and Neil Davidson. This ambitious volume examines revolutionary situations during a non-revolutionary historical conjuncture, the neoliberal era. The last three decades have seen an increase in the number of political upheavals that challenge existing power structures. And this book compellingly explores a series of such upheavals from Eastern Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa to Latin America. Find revolutionary radicals in the neoliberal age at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20 respectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here with Mariah Fanabeka and J.A. Smith to talk about their new book, Work, Want, Work, Labour and Desire at the End of Capitalism. How are you both doing today? Very well, Grace. Lovely, thanks. Great to be on the show. It's great to have you here on the show to talk about your fascinating book, which I really enjoyed reading. So I guess the first thing to kind of start with is a question about the changing nature of work itself. So what are some of the trends that you observe in the way that we're working? Are we really working a lot more than we used to? What are the trends in work that you've observed and how have those changed over the last two years during COVID and afterwards? The, the book was written largely in 2018 uh, right. and uh, it came out in, uh, in in early 2020. So it's it had a sort of odd fate of describing a situation prior to this you know, seismic event of the pandemic. And it was also written in the context of the sort of high point of the left populist experiments, uh, electoral experiments of recent years. So it, it came out just after the defeat of Corbyn, just before the defeat of Bernie, and uh, just as the pandemic uh, uh, rolled in. So it, in some ways, it had a slightly invidious fate of, of seeming like it was describing a, an old world and old solutions. But really, what became clear over the pandemic was, as with many things, really, the um, the dire situation that we described in the book was only going to become exaggerated and magnified and those trends were only going to continue. We were interested in the way that what is called neoliberalism had reduced the kind of clarity of our, our working roles. One way of putting it would be to say that the, the working class in, in rich nations uh, had been deindustrialized and dressed up in a, a next suit and pa- packed off to a a call centre to do a sort of simulacrum of professional class labour. Meanwhile, the old bourgeois professional class increasingly saw its work shorn of its specialisation, 
uh, shorn of its cultural authority and increasingly people were doing kind of identical forms of administrative and affective labor uh, in much the way that the working class was so th- there was this this kind of long story of neoliberalism of the specificity of the work we do being eroded the, the nature of the job itself becoming relativized at the same time uh, and this is a, a kind of big part of what we try to describe in the book more and more of what we do in traditionally uncommodified spaces of life was becoming commodified was becoming more and more work-like and that that was becoming even more pronounced in uh, the world of web 2.0 and the digital capitalism that had emerged uh, more or less simultaneously with the 2008 crash all of that was going to become more and more important during covid but maybe to describe that commodification of previously uh, decommodified spheres i'll hand over to mariah there yeah, sure. I guess the, the central idea of the book that really um, continued to, to, to be useful to us and that we continue to think about and um, during and after the pandemic is just that, that the central idea that capitalism is always striving to put new areas of your life and indeed every fibre of your being to work quite outside any official wage relation. And, you know, that digital and globalised capitalism has gotten exceptionally good at doing this uh, and doing just that. You know, there's all sorts of different examples we could talk about, you know, people, quite a lot of the discussion about work during the pandemic has been about um, working from home and the various effects that had. But, We've looked at another site really as an interesting one here, and that was the care homes and what happened in the care homes during the pandemic. So I guess if we just bracket the pandemic for the moment and just look at care homes and how they work now, care work used to be provided unpaid in the family and community, but that assumes that there are family and community members available who don't have to work for money all of their lives um, themselves to provide that work. So now that that isn't the case anymore, there's been that increase, increasing need for care, not just because, as we're always hearing, that people are getting older, but also because there's just simply no one there to do that care work. And that creates another market out of the fact that all available life is filled up with work. Um, so, you know, that's an example that would have been as true before the pandemic as during it. But then during it, of course, the way in which that doesn't work <laughs> and the way in which that led to, you know, death and mayhem and, and the plague pits of, of the care homes. But here, you know, just be, be one of those examples where various areas of lives get um, tapped by capitalism and piling work upon work in ways that don't fit into a normal wage relation. If you could explain both the concepts of desouvrement and life work and how these trends are linked to the changing class structure of our societies. Desouvrement comes out of a French philosophical tradition. It was used by Maurice Blanchot and Michel Foucault and and, and others uh, in the 20th century. And it means worklessness. uh, And those thinkers uh, used it often in a, a kind of literary context to think of, uh, of, of of poetry and the arts as as attempts to circumvent and remove oneself from the logic of work and the logic of capitalism. And we, we thought that that term from that tradition might add something to our debates on the left about 
work, which tend to be from uh, tend to derive their terms either from a, a straightforwardly Marxist or, or from um, Anglo-American sociological traditions. Uh, and f- for us, the use of it is that it, it gives a positive quality to not doing work, the state of not doing work. It requires a, a noun of its own. And and also in that tradition is something one way or another to aspire to. It takes active, uh, it's an active practice trying to <laughs> protect certain areas of life from the logic of, of capital and the logic of commodification. And we found it useful to think of the way that present capitalism finds more and more and more and more surprising areas to marketize because it describes the thing that is being eroded. One of our uh, big interests in the book is the way that um, we can say that since the 1980s, unemployment itself has almost been eviscerated as a concept, or, or at least that was the aspiration, that the shift in in Britain and, and, and then elsewhere in Europe from talking about unemployment benefit to talking about job seekers allowance is a pretty neat example of that. The, the way that even in the language of policy, you no longer wanted to acknowledge that it was possible for people not to be working. They had to instead be seen as potential workers. And indeed, the activities that they did while they were not working had to become increasingly work-like, being in the benefit system, applying for benefits, attending meetings, and so on, actually took on, became a sort of parody of what you'd be doing if you were in the workplace itself. So there's one example at the policy level of deservement being removed. It is utterly intolerable that anything could be thought of, even negatively, even if you wanted to condemn it, as workless. Flash forward to our current practices on social media. That's um, another kind of emphasis of the book. This is a great example of how even our most idle activities have now been put to work. It, it, it would be unimaginable to somebody 20 years ago that when you're you know, sat there on, on the bus or when you're just like hanging around in the house for the hangover, that even that could have become a, a market and a, a, maybe the uh, hegemonic market as far as uh, our present capitalism is concerned. And yet that is exactly what is happening when we're doom scrolling, wasting our time on social media. That's like what most of us would think of as our most unappealing, unproductive, kind of lazy moments. Even those can become this highly efficient space of capital. So the erosion of deservement in all spheres of our life as neoliberalism becomes more and more effective at conceptualizing everything as work is what we meant by this phrase, the putting to work of everything we do, or uh, we also call it life work in the book, that that more and more spaces of our our bios, our, our, our lived being is now put to work, even those parts that we would think of as the sort of the silly, the lazy, the uncommodifiable aspects of human life. You mentioned kind of social media and the um, commodification of our attention. There's Mm. been some really interesting trends with uh, the way that Gen Z engage with work 
and a lot of them are visible on social media because they're often using social media to promote this kind of like hustle culture. Um, so part of this obviously has to do with, you know, wages are low. Maybe people need more than one job to survive so they can you know, have their job and they have their side hustle. But there's also all of these weird trends on TikTok where you can like go down this rabbit hole of finding loads of influencers who are promoting, you know, passive income, uh, giving, you know, investment advice in inverted commas, pushing this like hustle culture of rise and grind. Like it's become really, um, really like uh, hegemonic among Gen Z. Why do you think that is? (laughs) It's an interesting comparison with uh, all of the talk we had about Generation Left in the Corbyn years, Mm. the, the idea that because you know, younger people had been effectively locked out of the benefits of neoliberalism, hadn't been bought in like much of the previous generations had been, that they would end up being inherently left wing. I guess what we're seeing is, uh, it, it, it is, I don't know, maybe the whether you see it as the as what was secretly really going on uh, with, with all those young Corbyn supporters, or whether this is a symptom of the failure of any kind of political redemption or political kind of out that rather these people have instead come to like completely identify with this sort of super neoliberalism of the rise and grind culture. Mm. I I don't know. They're kind of young girls, aren't they, Morella? Yes. Well, I mean, this is something that we discuss at length in the book as the kind of larger phenomenon of, of young girlification, which isn't limited to young people, but obviously does apply to them. So, you know, what what other culture have they got to turn to, but one where where success means to self-commodify as efficiently as you can. And of course, via social media, they've got this huge array of channels available um, to do that. I mean, politically, you know, James sort of men- mentioned that, that sad questionability of the generation left idea. It is um, worth noting that in Germany in the most recent elections, the FDP, which is the most hard neoliberal party, um, was mostly voted for by first-time voters. First-time voters in mm. vastly voted voted them in. And, you know, I, they were promised weird things like um, instead of pensions, they were promised, you know, hedge fund shares and things like that. So clearly there's there's some of that going on. But I, I think we talk about young girlification as a sort of a bigger phenomenon where this idea, which historically was seen as the um, realm of young women as far back as in the 19th century, in fact, wealthy young women, that the only way, the only way into the market they had was to basically self-commodify to to be on the marriage market to be very good at being themselves to to really put their personality their grace their everything on the table this was Jane Austen you know you know how to draw exactly yeah exactly exactly Yes, yes. But that you know taking the the French theory collective who we quote when we use that term young young girls with capital Y and capital G, we're not wrong to say that this was paradigmatic then for a sort of subjectivity, which has only grown since, where they say no matter whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are old or young, whether you are a pope, a president, a, pol- a policeman, everybody is somehow in this culture now of self-commodification, where you have to appeal and sell yourself via your personality in any number of ways. 
um, your personality as well as any other personal assets that you've got. And of course, social media makes that easier and makes it, and I guess what we're interested in broadly here is not to judge it or to say, oh, get out of that and it's somehow glib or, or um, shallow, but that it's it's got some inevitable force and the danger to identify there is, is that you, you are unable eventually to distinguish very easily between your own desires and that capitalist exploitation. And it's useful to try and put some space between those two things, if you can. I think Morella's right that um, the, the like moralistic uh, judgment of the Adorno type is, 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 not, is not the kind of way to assess these things. And, and I'd just add that the rise and grind thing and all those memes, I mean, is, is there not an element of gallows humour in it? Is, is it can it really be totally straight faced when people talk like that? This was kind of coming on to my next question, actually, because mm. alongside that, we do also see Gen Z being, in a lot of ways, more assertive and kind of more mercurial because, mm. you know, we're seeing the rise of things like quiet quitting. So just like basically not doing all this extra stuff that you write about in the book that people are now expected to do. Mm-hmm. There's a whole phenomenon online of people just saying, actually, no, I'm quiet quitting my job, i.e., I'm refusing to do anything than what is in my contract. And, you know, we also had the great resignation, lots of people saying, you know, this the work I'm doing is bad during COVID. I'm not going to go back to it. Mm-hmm. And lots of kind of reports that Gen Z generally aren't willing to put up with a lot of the stuff that millennials are willing to put up with mm-hmm. at work. Some people call it entitlement. Others see it as, well, they're getting not paid particularly well and living in societies mm-hmm. that are collapsing. So why should they put up with all that? So, yeah, it isn't a kind of... Um, as you say, a one-sided trend. It's almost like, you know, they take work very seriously, but that also in some ways means that they are pushing back against a lot of the trends that you Mm. write about in the book. Yes. Well, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, things are moving very quickly there. But I guess if we take a step back, then yes, there's, you know, there are different ways of dealing with this situation. You can be go all in and try and sell yourself in the most effective ways. And that's obviously part of youth culture as well as any other part of culture. And then there are also forms of resistance. I guess the question in the long run is how far can you get in the 2020s with just, you know, that sort of quiet withdrawal? How far is that going to work when there's really, you know, there's really nowhere to run from from this um from the pressures of the job market and from from the fact that there isn't really, you know, like I guess what I'm trying to get at is how how can you get out of it without political organisation? I think you can't. And there's only ever going to be so many people who manage mm. to have a, a decent life just by quietly, you know, quietly being stern with their bosses and yeah. just not just, just not doing the work individually. That's how, how far is that ever going to get? I, I think maybe our, our first response to the growth of working from home uh, during COVID was to see it as something that a lot of people were, a lot of progressives were representing as a kind of good thing and, and kind of liberating people from expensive commutes and so on. Our initial kind of suspicious view was that this would be yet another kind of frontier of life work, another kind of way in which previously uncommodified spheres would be commodified. Now, my private world and space at home is part of my professional representation even my you know bedroom where i'm working from home is now you know part of the office and and, and that's a kind of double edged thing all of those like <laughs> me too cases of of old editors and uh, and columnists 
inadvertently being exposed as uh, you know taking baths during um, Zoom meetings and 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 flashing and so on. Th- those were kind of peculiarly culturally fraught moments of a logic that that was there in what everybody who was working from home was kind of going through, which was like now previously utterly private things are, are part of the workplace. What those uh, Gen Z uh, examples show is that that did also kind of open up a space for resistances in so many kind of professional sectors admitting that you could just do this work from home. So many kind of teaching professionals that didn't want to be exposed to the virus and didn't want to go in were making the case for, 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 for working from home. There was a sort of devaluing of the kind of, of, of that kind of work that was implicit in that. But as Morella was saying, this has sort of limited political use, usefulness because these neoliberal bureaucracies have always tolerated a huge amount of unproductive work going on. All of those spreadsheets that um, people in these kind of jobs fill in that never get used for anything or never get used, all of that bullshit job stuff that we know about, that that always showed that people were quietly quitting. You, you've quietly quitted even if you're doing all that work because it's not actually useful for anything. It doesn't actually get used for anything, if you, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so this kind of brings us nicely on to a discussion about resistance to work because we're used to thinking about the trends over the last kind of 40-ish years as really being quite negative in terms of people's capacities to resist generally through the labour movement, to kind of collectively resist their own exploitation um, and oppression in work. So what are the ways in which the trends that you highlight have both like contributed to the erosion of uh, workers' power and also generated new forms of resistance? So we've talked a little bit about that, but what, what else is there out there? Hmm. So how has it contributed? Well, I think... You know, the biggest and, and, and kind of the, the, the biggest headline here is the disappearance of the boss. So the rise of precarity, the huge rise of precarity, which comes in so many different forms, means that a rising number of people don't have any direct boss to address any complaint to and therefore have no power really to get out of the work situation that they're in and you know the gig economy is the most obvious example for that but as we also discuss in the book various white collar jobs are increasingly gigified and also affected by that so you know there's a huge rise of freelance which is essentially a euphemism for working in a way that isn't sustainable and not having any 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 way to fight for better work conditions so that's part of the 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 structure of the beast in terms of forms of resistance well I mean, I used to be a lot more optimistic about the structures of social media in themselves having a lot of potential. And I don't think that they don't have any potential, but I think really the potential is going to just come out of, is coming out of the fact that things are getting so bad for so many people that resistance is coming in the good old fashioned way of strikes in the workplace. But maybe another way in which our analysis can contribute to you know, to thinking this through slightly differently is the way in which so many areas of life don't immediately come along in that clean and neat shape of an industrial struggle, but are nonetheless related to it. And I guess the most recent example that we're working on now and that we're going to write some more about is this quintessential example of the care home, this weird thing that we try not to look at too much because it's so horrible to face up to 
death under capitalism and the weird way in which profit is being derived from it. But, you know, this is such a huge material issue. Of course, workers are very much affected by it. So, you know, care workers are some of the most exploited uh, workers in the country, um, all working at minimum wage and insane hours, often insane conditions. But also the way in which, well, the, the residents themselves are becoming this horrible commodity when fi- financialized private equity providers trying to extract profit from something that should be a public service. So I think, you know, one of the ways in which we might be able to put this to use, this way of looking for work outside work, is to, yes, you know, in a very material, simple sense, next to the strikes, look again more aggressively at how we can try and claw back some of of our public services. It's it's interesting to look back on the 2017 election, given that so much of our conversation thus far has been about young people, their resistances, their work practices and their technology. 2017, that, that kind of high watermark of our left electoral experiments, was kind of represented and we you know, those of us involved in it represented it as a youth movement, a sort of revenge of the young against a system that after 2008 had, had basically given up on them and treated them as expendable. And that was a great deal of its rhetorical power and remains an important thing to remember and, and, and not to a, a allow it to be kind of erased from our collective memory as there is so much pressure to to do at the same time it's worth recalling that the moment when Theresa May started to wobble was precisely on the subject of of social care when the dementia tax policy uh, which which was going to mean that older people would have to sell assets in order to have home care as well as if they were to move into to residential care and that should remind us that a, a great kind of element of instability in the system is not only located among the workforce, but is located in people who are too old to work. So it's important to see this not just as a, a workers' issue. It's totally right that uh, the current strike militancy and sympathy for strikes that's going on right now uh, is the centre of our movement. But it's worth reflecting that a sort of underexplored subtext of our kind of previous moment of great success and momentum on the left actually involved old people. And that maybe was underplayed and and wasn't explored enough, especially as the kind of drift of of Corbynism moved towards, well, you know, being anti-Brexit and so on, you know, which which had a generational kind of tint to it. If we then kind of look at the pandemic period, this was again a moment where a lot of the representation of it was that this was the young making sacrifices for the old, that uh, young people were going along with lockdown in order to protect old people. But actually, the way that those policies were pursued didn't protect old people at all. And in fact, uh, old people um, in care homes or in, in social care were in Britain and uh, elsewhere, more or less deliberately sacrificed uh, for for reasons that are, are totally attached to the kind of commodification that Morella was just describing. So if we if we kind of look at those sort of stop-off points for the left, 2017, COVID, and now the current new strike militancy, I would 
just argue that we're perhaps underestimating the importance of this growing population of vulnerable old people who are in fact very important and in some ways kind of the the true representative of the kinds of effects that this um, phase of capitalism uh, is producing. I mean, we saw um, over the weekend, there was an article, I think Robert Colville published it actually, kind of responding Mm. to this line in the Telegraph that came out a while ago, which was young people just need to kind of suck it up and deal with it and start paying for old people. And he wrote this article saying, well, actually, old people have never had it so good. The average pensioner earns more than the average worker, which Mm -hmm. was a really striking statistic. Um, So in a lot of ways, we've seen older people be able to protect um, themselves and their benefits and entitlements much more easily than younger people have and working people have for a lot of different reasons, including, um, you know, their uh, power as asset owners and also mm. the extent to which they turn out to vote, particularly mm. for the Conservative Party, etc. Mm. So, you know, is it, can we really be expected to feel sorry for old people, I guess? Mm. Those assets are, are, are big in relative terms, but they get burned through pretty quickly when you, when you need, when you need social care and they get burned through pretty quickly when you're looking at the kind of energy bills and old people need more mm. heating mm. and so on uh, that we're looking down yeah. uh, the barrel of right now. I think it's useful here to take a step back and, and see how things are going to pan out in the future. And I think this is just a sort of a, re- a moment. And of course there's, you know, it's, it, it is true. And it is sometimes, you know, there's a lot of affect here when you, when you experience that a generational wealth gap, but it's not going to last. And I think really, it's a real danger for the left to get caught up in generational arguments. And I think ultimately, we don't want to be doing it because that isn't really the the bigger picture. The bigger picture is the gap between rich and poor getting bigger and the middle class just just running like sand through our fingers as we speak. And um, I guess with this particular story, it's worth remembering. And I thought about this a lot, actually, when reading Keir's book about Generation Left, and and I think he's actually done a little bit of work in that direction as well, which is the fact that all those people who got, um, you know, won over by Thatcher through the right-to-buy schemes of council houses are going to end up losing that money again when they have to sell off their houses to pay for their care in the end. So ultimately, in the long run, it's just the way in which for-profit organisations are involved in elder care, and on the one hand, especially the big private equity firms, and on the other hand, there's a government that has slashed funding for local authorities who are responsible legally for elder care, what you end up getting is a picture where, I mean, it's all up in the air, there are going to be a lot of changes in, in care in the future, because, you know, because there just isn't a plan for that huge increase of need. Um, but one way or another, they're going to find a way to tap into that money. And only the very richest old people will be able to protect that money, A, for themselves, and then B, for their children. So it's it's just really, really, I think, the way, because elder care is not protected, because it's not provided communally and publicly, increasingly, it's, it's an excellent tool to help the redistribution of wealth upwards. Yeah, and it's important to remember that the state of elder care doesn't only affect old people, because while it may be old people who are the recipients of the shoddy, cobbled together, unreliable system, which was uh, in many cases used to kill them during COVID, 
it's young people who work in them. As as uh, as the population ages, more and more of the economy is going to be taken up with elder care and social care. So social care is growing as an area in which uh, young people are going to be working. So yeah, the, the, the living conditions of older people are the working conditions of younger people increasingly. And I, I think that that was another mistrick uh, really during the COVID period, a mistrick in the sense of the dominant left position being to simply defend lockdowns as they were offered and in fact to demand that they were just rolled out in a in a in a more maximalist form what i mean by that is that the what was missed was an opportunity to uh, completely change the nature of social care you you had a disease that was mainly affecting much older people and you had a policy response to that that really involved locking down a lot of younger people, moving their work online, if they had that kind of job, and sort of freezing conditions as they were. There was no kind of um, argument made that you could have a lot of those young people, instead of doing email jobs from home, they could be brought into to respond to this huge expansion in the need for social care during COVID, which would have brought with it a revaluation of the working conditions for that kind of care, what it should be paid, how how its contracts should be managed, and so on. The fact that you had in 2020 seven custom-built Nightingale hospitals that between them, you know, uh, only saw a handful of patients, all the while you had a huge kind of potential workforce that could have been contributing to those hospitals and and and, and stopping a situation where care home residents were told that they couldn't go to hospital, even if nor- under normal conditions they would have gone. There was an opportunity there for completely redefining what that kind of social work, work that inevitably more and more of us are going to be doing, was going to look like. And, well, we know how it happened, but it, it just wasn't taken. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about care homes and care work, because we you know we see a lot of arguments on the left about care work, and often they kind of romanticise care work. So, you know, saying yes. that this is a really lovely thing that it's going to be great when we can all, you know, just spend all of our time kind of caring for each other because that's going to be the work that we're going to have to do in the future. But of course, it is often quite difficult work. And it's important to remember here as well that we're not just talking about social care that's provided for older people as part of adult social care. We're also talking about care for the disabled, um, children's social care, uh, which has actually experienced much more severe cuts to budgets Mm -hmm. than um, adult social care. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's really kind of been, yeah. you know, stripped down to to the barest of bones. So we've got all of these elements of the care system that basically are kind of completely and utterly broken. Some of which, as you've mentioned, the uh, main kind of adult social care homes are being used as, you know, funnels basically to siphon off wealth to private equity firms with effectively no conditions. And private equity's kind of, you know... Mm. Um, massively gone into that industry because they know that they can basically create contracts with government that allow them to get paid regardless of the Mm. kind of quality of service that they deliver 
and they can kind of push the costs onto their workers. So the service provision in all of these areas is terrible. The work is awful, extremely low paid. And yet we're all expected to kind of just put up, well, workers in that sector are just kind of expected to put up with it because it's nice, you know, good work, in inverted commas, that people should enjoy doing. And I'm wondering how the all of this links to the concepts that you introduced in the book of kind of malemployment and disemployment. Yes. Well, there's a lot to, to be said about this, about the care sector. And I mean, one of the first things perhaps is, is that it's a really good example of talking about affective labour and emotional labour in a way that rather than steer the discussion into some sort of sterile oh, well, women are doing a lot of affective labor, men have to do the work and understand that and appreciate it more, etc., sort of bourgeois discussion. Instead, we can really hear steer towards a very material issue, which is that because carers, because caring was traditionally women's work, it makes it easier culturally to keep the pay low. And that's been true, you know, ever since the Second World War and ever since the rise of care, paid care work. And the fact that care is a profession that demands compassion and attracts compassionate people means that their emotional labor is exploited to keep them at work in awful circumstances. So that's obviously true. And we all know how, you know, it's not, see, there are very few people who don't look through this um, awful hypocrisy of the NHS clapping for carers when really it was just a way to basically distract from their demands for better pay and better conditions. So there is. There is that. But then there's also the fact that we're really hitting rock bottom with that now because um, because people don't want to do care work anymore because it's increasingly well now known that the circumstances are just too awful that, you know, you will need counselling when you leave a care job. And, you know, there was there was a gap. I think there were about 60,000 unfilled places roughly in the 2010s. And now there are 160,000 in the care sector. So there's a real material issue there. And that, of course, again, comes with an opportunity for organising and really demanding better pay and better conditions because they really are running out of people to do it. In terms of the concept that we're talking about, I guess, uh, James and I were particularly interested in the care home because um, it's a situation of the malemployed serving the disemployed. Um, Should I say what those, uh, what those terms are? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> we, our focus uh, in, in the book was on the adventure of policy relating to unemployment benefits, first of all. Uh, and it, it was really the the pandemic that, that made us realise that it it applies yet more to um, the, the the changes in the care sector. But our claim uh, is that it no longer makes sense to think of employment as un- uh, employment and unemployment as a straightforward binary opposition. That increasingly, it makes sociological sense to have a kind of unifying term for conditions that people who are employed and people who are unemployed actually share. To be malemployed is to perform work that is insufficiently remunerated to live on, that's antisocial, precarious, physically and mentally unhealthy, contains substantial unpaid elements, uh, is invasive, undignified uh, and or sustains in-work poverty, uh, it might be work falsely categorised as self-employment, 
uh, so that it has the demands but not the security of employee life and it might be micromanaged and quite a lot of that applies both to people who are unemployed but on a sort of workfare scheme or or just you know fulfilling the deliberately kafkaesque bureaucratic process of applying for the benefits in the first place and it describes uh, people in low paid work especially um uh, uh, care workers the point is that like historic historically you know <laughs> going back centuries you could make a binary opposition between employed people and unemployed people along moralized lines of success and failure health and sickness or autonomy and dependency prosperity and struggle but now employed and unemployed people uh, both experience the the downside of those of those pairs uh, increasingly employed and unemployed people can perform the same work at the same branches of the same companies we've all seen adverts for job placements, uh, tra- training job placements for people on uh, universal credits, and you might be working alongside a, a full-time employee, you can uh, eat from the same food banks and return at night to the same sheltered accommodation because more than half of those in sheltered accommodation, more than half of the, those technically homeless people are in fact working. So malemployment is our attempt to attest to the fact that work will no longer save you. The the work no longer uh, guarantees any kind of baseline in the way that has been the expectation of social democracy since since the Second World War. This is going to get worse, isn't it, as we move Mm -hmm. into this, you know, massive recession that we're looking at at the moment, because we've seen a trend with a lot of recent recessions where the level of unemployment that you expect is actually technically lower than what you might see, have seen in the past. Yeah. But that's because people are taking all these gigs and still can't earn enough to get by. Yeah, exactly. You can no longer be be technically unemployed. You've been defined out of that. And yet no, you also kind of don't like exist in any kind of baseline of what is required to live. And that kind of brings us to why we needed that second term, disemployment. This, this way in which our kind of uh, definitions have, for political reasons, been made almost entirely useless. You know, the, the employment figures, you know, are are, are, uh, are record high for, for 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 the economic situation we're in, and yet people are living miserably. The point is that for us, part of the novelty of the policies that were pursued after the two thousand and eight crash was that there was a new tolerance for people just disappearing from the system altogether. We we were influenced here by Saskia Sasson's work on expulsions, which Mm. she calls an economic version of ethnic cleansing, where the the need to show growth, the need to show GDP, means that increasingly states are incentivized to remove whole stratas of people, whole categories of experience, even whole geographical regions from their calculation. There is a kind of kicking out of the baseline expectations of citizenship that has been characteristic of all kinds of areas of our policymaking since the crash. In Britain specifically, uh, and uh, you know, thinking about the coalition government's austerity program, which has, uh, has continued uh, into successive 
governments. This this took the form of, yeah, in the area of un- unemployment benefits, a kind of new and highly innovative use of benefit sanctions, where you, you're not only kicked out of benefits for not taking a job that was available, you're kicked out because you didn't fill in the form correctly, because you didn't come to the appointment at the right time. This was a huge motivation for us in the book, actually, that the, the, the sheer obscenity of that as a development, that like the whole idea of the post-war settlements, that there, there was a kind of basic standard of life that you could expect uh, as, a, as a citizen, the fact that that was just silently dispensed with was one of the, 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 the real kind of epistemic changes, really, of that moment. And, and the, the same goes for care work in that, you know, home visits from social workers went from being something that anybody with with a, a baseline of need could expect to something more like an emergency service. So all of uh, the welfare state was recalibrated to actually have a new tolerance of simply allowing people to drop out of the system altogether and i i suppose you know with uh with this kind of gro- growth of people quitting you know the the great resignation this growth of people trying to make it uh, in a, a much more informal economy this growth of people sort of well yeah that that gen z kind of kind of thing that you're describing early in the interview uh this sort of new ethos of almost a sort of extreme libertarianism i i would take these i think uh, I, I think both of us would as sort of like sim- reverberating symptoms of a, a huge change uh, uh, that occurred so that's what we mean by disemployment if malemployment mm-hmm. is the fact that you know being in work or not being in work is no longer a particularly informative like way of categorizing things actually we need to talk about the way in which these people share a lot more than they don't share. The the accompanying kind of trend is disemployment, this way that actually work status has become in a way a lever for conveniently dispensing with people from the economy altogether. Mm. And a a last note is that 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 I think explains why the the government um, was so happy to protect the NHS, as we remember the great propaganda phrase was, precisely by protecting it from the people it should have had responsibility for, uh, having all these secret briefings that care homes were not to mm. admit people to hospital. They were to leave them on their beds to die to die alone. So just to add to that, um, so this idea that the people who died in the care homes were disemployed in a sense, not least for the fact that they were no longer workers, that they were no longer, in, you know, that in a in a society so thoroughly framed by forms of work, they were very marginal. But we should also add to that, that quite beside the pandemic, figures show that only 43% of the people who request social care from their council actually receive it. And of course, there's a simple reason for that, not that councils are evil, but that their budgets have been slashed more than in half um, since, you know, the austerity cuts. And, you know, charities who try and help people fighting to access social care say that there are about 1.5 million people living in Britain without the social care that they need. So 
there is a, a bigger phenomenon again, and there we kind of see again how it really helps to look at work, but also at this being put to work that doesn't quite fit ideas of employment. And then beyond that, even this being expelled, not just from work, but from citizenship altogether, because where are those people, those people, they try to get the care they need, they don't get it, they will never feature in any statistics of people who've died because they've received inadequate care inside a care home, because there was never a care home in the first place to take them in. And on that note, I think we're going to have to leave it, guys, because I have loads more questions for you. But we are coming to the end of our allotted time with one another. And I think yes. the fact that we've only managed to get through a few of the questions, and I still had so many more to ask, does really point to how rich your book is and how, how relevant it is, despite being now, you know, quite a few years old. Um, so thank you guys so much for coming on the show. This was a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Grace. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. 